0: On episode eight of the High Performance Leadership Podcast, part two with Dr. Chris Meyer.
1: The fear and duty drive people so much, particularly at lower levels, that we have to we have to design motivational systems away from those.
0: You're listening to the High Performance Leadership Podcast. Insights and information from world-class leadership experts. We're picking up where we left off with Chris Meyer, professor of management at Baylor University. If you haven't heard part one with Chris, I highly recommend going back to this podcast's first episode and catching up. In this episode, we talk about the different paradigms that drive people. We also talk about, as a leader in a company, rewarding behaviors you want, not what's worked in the past. And now, our interview with Chris.
2: Well, one of the frameworks that we teach, and I'd like to get your perspective on it, is uh, in emotional intelligence, we talk about there's paradigms, and the paradigms in which we, the filters in which we see situations. So when a a key moment pops up, a decision point, our brain goes through triggers, and the first is the meaning, and then that meaning creates a feeling, and then the feeling creates our behavior, and our behaviors ultimately result in what happens to us, right? So... With us, we believe that it starts with the meaning of every situation. Would you elaborate on on, on how you see that playing out
1: yeah absolutely there's there's a couple of different uh, views in the in the organizational psychology literature about how we interpret different interactions different situations um, and one view is that the meaning then dictates the feeling and the feeling dictates the behavior. And a lot of people subscribe to that view. There's another view that says that we take that feeling that we get from an interaction. I have an interaction and the feeling is instantaneous. And then I ascribe some meaning to it. And based on that meaning, then that drives the behavior. So it's, it's a little bit dependent on how your view of life is do we go through life in a sense-making process? You know, I walk into the studio and I see the microphones and I and I make sense of it. I say, oh, this is where they do the podcast, right? Mm-hmm. It, or do I walk in and do I look at it and then just let it flow from there and say, maybe this is somebody's office and they like to have a lot of electronic equipment. I don't know. <laughs> so, you know, having that understanding of something happens, you know, somebody cuts you off in traffic and then, you know, am I mad because they cut me off or am I mad because I'm making sense of the reaction that happens deep in the amygdala before I can understand where it comes from.
2: So you, so that I understand and clarify, you're saying that instead of it being meaning, feeling behavior, you might see it as feeling creates a behavior. The behavior then dictates the result. I think that there are, those are the two main views. Um, I,
1: I tend to fall kind of in between. I think mm-hmm. there are certain situations that we have been through enough times that we have the meaning for those situations. Yeah. Uh, I, I understand that, you know, when I walk into a, a room, a negotiation um, that I've been through several times. When I was when I was in uh, when I was in the software companies, I knew when I went into. Different clients, how that interaction was going to take place. So I had the meaning, and then the feeling and the behavior came out of that meaning. So I think if we've got that basis, we can build it that way. Sometimes with a new situation, I walk in, something happens. Mm -hmm. Um, I always give the example in class of if we're sitting in class and a tiger walks into the room, you know, that's pretty scary. So we have this feeling, and then we run and, or some of us maybe will have the fight initiative instead mm-hmm. of the flight initiative. And I'd like to watch that, but <laughs> <laughs> you know, from, from a distance, from Sounds a distance, like because I'm going to go with flight immediately, <laughs> yeah. but, but we don't, we don't need, it's something that's never happened to us, but we don't need to go through that process of discovering the meaning of it. We have fear, we run. Um, so there are certain things that I think that are driven deep down inside
2: that we don't have to find that meaning because the meaning is ascribed to us already. So the question that I would have then to to go deeper into this is, are some people more wired, pre-wired, I guess, to be feeling before meaning and some might be more wired to be meaning before feeling? That's a really good question. And it sounds like we need to do some empirical research on that. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, that some might argue that some people are just more emotional beings. Mm-hmm. And because they're more emotional and because they, they tend to wear their emotions on their sleeve, that every situation they go into starts with feeling because they don't know any other paradigm to see it through than to feel it first and then tie a meaning to it. Where other people, maybe with that are older, have more wisdom, maybe more experience, have more meaning to tie from. So when they go in, they don't overreact to anything. They... they frame the meaning first and then figure out how they feel about it. An example I would use again is this podcast. So you walk into this office, you look around, you see all the equipment. Some people might be very emotional and they might Mm -hmm. say, oh my goodness, I'm scared to death. Their palms start sweating, you know, sweat rolls down their forehead because the feeling of what's about to happen uh, is scary to them because they've never done it before. Whereas someone who's done lots of podcasting or media or whatever, they come in and they go, oh, this is, I understand the meaning of this. I've done this before I've been down here so this doesn't create this rush of feeling inside of me yet. It's the meaning will create the feeling and that will again dictate the behavior. Yeah I think I think that's a really accurate thing to say and
1: we've got uh, we've got a lot of research that does show that there are individual differences in the way that people have that emotive state. So I would agree that some people, come in with that emotion as the forefront. Some people come in with the logic more in the forefront. And a lot of it depends on the situation. A lot of it depends on the maturity of the person. A lot of it depends on what they've been through in the past. Mm -hmm. If you haven't been through much, then it's difficult for you to ascribe that meaning beforehand. Right.
2: And and also, as we know, that in tying it back to negotiation or leadership, a lot of times young leaders, the ones that I've been working with that are managers per se, that are trying to move into a leadership role, they're trying to differentiate, differentiate the difference between managing people and leading people and what those look like. Most of the time, if they don't have a lot of experience in being a leader, they, they lead with emotion and uh, without a lot of logic and so because they don't have any meaning to tie it back to they've never been down this road they you know they have been in that many wars so to speak so they they lead with emotion where a senior leader someone who's been down the road multiple times understands a little bit more at least i think understands a little bit more about the meaning of what it's going to take to emotionally get buy-in from this entire team or these people and so uh, the paradigm i guess is first thing I talked about, the paradigm in which we see everything is the filter in which maybe the sequence really plays out. Yeah, I I agree. And thinking back,
1: as you were talking about that, I was thinking back to when I was that young leader, manager in software firms, and we were all over our head. And it was about emotion at that point. It was about, you know, you are 25 years old and you you need to sell enough so that the company stays afloat and go wherever and do whatever and it was a very emotional aspect to it and it was a, a very emotional sale you know we would go out and we would really focus on that that emotional aspect of it and the why and i think we missed a lot of the how and the what which would be the logical aspect of it and mm-hmm. and i think that when we when we talk about bringing that emotion into a negotiation or a human interaction um, whether you're a leader or follower or whatever your role is in that, we want to make sure that we we don't just focus only on that emotional aspect. And I do think that there is some, whether it's whether it's youth or inexperience, I think either one of those can play into that where we focus a lot on that emotion. Because I think that if we're inexperienced in a situation... Um, long-tenuredness is nice, but it doesn't necessarily solve that emotional
2: aspect. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and on the paradigm side of things, and we talk about this as well, there's four paradigms that we primarily teach. And the first is fear. And you go back to Maslow's hierarchy of need, if you don't feel safe and secure, you know nothing else makes sense. If that if all you can think about is that tiger that walked in the room eating you, you know, you don't care what you're having for dinner tonight, right? You don't, you don't think logically when you're afraid for your life. So fear is the first paradigm, duty being the second, achievement being the third, and then integrity being the fourth. And integrity is the hardest one to get to because you got to have a lot of meaning to filter most of what you do through integrity. And young managers that are moving up how do you try and get senior people to, to tie a lot of meaning to stuff when you're a 20-something-year-old manager trying to create? Uh, and most of what they're looking at is fear. I, I want to keep my job. I want to do a good job or or duty or achievement. And and that integrity is kind of one of those things where we'll get to it eventually, but right now I just got to get my job done. I want to be liked by other people. You know, there's a there's a gap there that we're trying to close. Yeah, I, I
1: think that... Uh, that the fear and duty drive people so much, uh, particularly at lower levels, that we have to we have to design motivational systems away from those. Uh, I get a lot of questions about, well, how do I how do I employ this, but I still have to hit a quota. How do I employ this, but you know my procurement manager has said this is what we have to do. You know, how do I employ these ideas, Chris, about making people come together and work together and which would be the integrity level. And it's really difficult to work around the motivational systems in organizations. So my, my best advice is we've got to really, as organizations, look at the motivational systems that we're putting in place. Look at the way that people get rewarded. What are we rewarding? Are we rewarding the behaviors that we want, or are we rewarding the behaviors that we've always rewarded, right? For salespeople, if we have if we have, you know, something that is really new on the market, really interesting, really difficult for customers to understand, do we really want the salesperson out there selling under a quota? Or do we want them out there doing the kind of things like a technology evangelist would do, where they go out and they just talk about, this is what we're doing, and it's really cool stuff. And how you, how could you see this impacting your business as opposed to, well, you know what? I've got to hit my number
2: because of the fear or because of the duty. Mm-hmm. So to or even get, achievement. Even achievement. If it's individually rewarded, we talked about this in a staff meeting just recently, that if if we reward individually, then collectively we're all in it for ourselves and not in it collectively. And that that can be a negative consequence. If the overall goal is to grow the organization and do great work and have meaning and, and, and we're passionate about it, then how do we reward individuals and still also have that, you know, totality of what we're trying to build as a group. It's, right. It's a, uh, it's tough. And, and we build all of these systems
1: that measure our interactions on individual metrics and then we say to people well why aren't you mentoring the younger people in the organization well there's no reward for me first of all and second of all if i mentor them to be better they may compete with me for the raise Mm -hmm. so we have these systems that we have to think about really carefully to make sure that we're putting the right things in place people understand reward systems very well people understand how to live under the system and maximize their outcome. So if we give them clear direction that says do for you, they're going to do for them. If we, if we build systems that build mentors that make leaders out of people, they're going to do those things.
2: That's a, that's a really good point. Now I've got a question for you. This podcast may turn into five hours. If we keep <laughs> going this route. Cause it's Chris is very interesting and I like it. Um, uh, so what if you put in a reward system that is collective in nature? So everybody on the team wins if we all row together, but you have one or two key players on the team that are not interested in the team. They're interested in themselves first and the team second, but you're trying to create an environment where it's team first, individual second. How do you how do you balance that? How, how do you, especially if the one or two players that have been there the longest, they have tenure, they've, they've stuck around, they're the top producers, they've made the most money, whether it's in sales or or management or whatever the case might be, and they're in a traditional paradigm, traditional mindset of, you know, I I worked my tail off through the ranks, I've been kicked on, beat on, you know, ridiculed all the way up, now I'm at the top of the food chain, it's my turn to kick and ridicule others, but the paradigm is changing and now we're a team environment, not an individual environment you know do you manage them in or do you manage them out of the organization to change the overall culture sure and and
1: culture shift is really difficult um you culture shift starts at the top so if you can't get those people that are important to embrace that new culture it's going to be a fight um mm-hmm. it's going to be a real fight it can still work uh but we have to make a decision about if we manage them into the new organization, are they going to ever buy into the new motivational system? And we have to make sure that the motivational system celebrates what they did in the past, but moves them into the future. Everybody understands that the way that organizations work, it's changing. It's not the same as the past. It's not the the autocratic system that has a huge hierarchy of, you know, the boss at the top and then several levels of management. And then there's the soldiers. We know that that doesn't work anymore. We know that flat organizations are here and people can lead from different places in the organization. Mm -hmm. So provide that opportunity for what's important to those two or three people that are, that are holdovers. What's important to them? How can we bring them in and use some of the skills that they have and take some of that specialty and really fold it in and reward what they've done while moving them into it. And it's it's very difficult. And I, I don't mean to make light of it with just that comment of find their specialty and, and bring yeah. them in. But that's really what we have to do is we have to look at what do those people bring to the organization? They, they obviously bring something if they've been there for a long time. So how can we take what they bring and then make it important to them to bring that to the rest of the organization? hmm
0: I have a good example. Um, I used to be a cameraman at a TV station, and I was very interested when I started on my own accolades, like winning the awards and stuff like that. And I had good mentors that helped me get there. And once I started kind of, I've been there for a while, um, they started taking me out of the important stories and having me mentor the younger guys and help them. And I got upset about that at first because I was like, well, I want to win this year and I've won the last two years, so I I need to keep winning. And they're like, no, it's more about, you know, think about where you came from and there was somebody there to help you get to the level you're at now. So now it's your turn. And I had so much more satisfaction. It's similar to giving a gift. Everyone says it's better to give than to receive. I enjoyed winning the awards. I enjoyed um, honing my craft, but it was really rewarding to see the people underneath me come up and come to the level and have that same appreciation for the craft. So, yeah,
2: I uh, think though the the key though is the difference between ego, mm-hmm. which is self rewarding, and that's why we want to win the awards is ego driven, mm-hmm. versus the reward system that was in place when you mentored others and saw others win. It's a different part of the brain that that fires, right? I think. And, and the other thing, and Randy, when Randy was
1: talking, I was thinking a lot about you know the job that I'm in is the definition of an individual job. I sit in my office and I write my research. I I sit in my office and I think about my class. I walk into the classroom. I'm the only one in there that's working. Everyone else is getting something from me. So it's a very individual job. And to then think about, but I'm within a department, within a school, within a college, within a university. And how how am I producing something that is for the bottom line of the university and and bottom line, not meaning monetarily, but bottom line, which is what are we trying to accomplish as a university? I have to, I have to think through, okay, what is my contribution here and how am I doing that? And the university's job then is to put systems in place that say, Chris did this really well, and this is how it, it, it accomplished our goals. And we have to think about that. And so at the university level, the president of the university doesn't know who I am or, or what's going on with oh, me. I'm, sh- I'm but sure he does. <laughs> I'm sure he does. Who couldn't? <laughs> but, but my department chair does. So that we, we do have to have those people at those levels of leadership that say, this is what we're doing and this is what we're rewarding and this is how we're trying to accomplish the goals that are going to feed up into the bigger goals. And I don't always know that because I don't know what goes on necessarily at Pat F Hall, which is where the, the administration sits, I know what happens in my small office in the foster campus, and I know what I'm doing and what I'm producing. So to make that connection, we need those people that can bring us that information, that can make that connection, that can have that transparency that says what you're doing is really positive for the organization, or What you're doing is not necessarily going in the direction that we need it to go. And how can we adjust that? And I think that transparency is, and we started talking out about emotions and how important it was to be transparent about the emotions. We need leaders that are willing to bring that transparency to the table and say, this is what we're trying to accomplish. So if you're the two or three holdovers in an organizational change process, we need leaders that can go and say, This is what you bring. This is why I need you. Or leaders that go and say, this is where we're going. And if you don't want to come with us, I'll help you out. Yeah. Wonderful.
2: Well, Chris, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you coming in here today. It's been absolutely wonderful. I know that everybody that's listening to this has got gotten a lot out of it. I know I personally have gotten a lot out of it, and I, Randy and I both for appreciate sure. yeah. yeah, absolutely everything. Hopefully you'll come back and be a guest again. I would love to. I uh, had a lot of fun today. Yeah, I, I, I you and I are kindred souls because I promise you, you and I can sit and talk for hours about this stuff and, and find it interesting. So, again, thank you very much for coming in, and hopefully we'll have you on another show here pretty quick. Thanks for having me. You bet.
0: The High Performance Leadership Podcast is also sponsored by Principles of High Performance Leadership, the book by Chip Wilson. The first 100 people to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast get the book for free. That's right, free book. Go to 360solutions.com for more information. Thanks for listening to the High Performance Leadership Podcast. Make sure and subscribe via iTunes, give us a rating, and leave us a review. Tell everyone you know to do the same thing. The more subscriptions, ratings, and reviews we get, the higher iTunes rates us. Visit our website at hpleadershippodcast.com, tweet at us at twitter.com slash 360 underscore solutions, and find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 360 solutions, LLC. That's all together, no spaces. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.